Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Raising Equity on YouTube. Welcome to Raising Equity. We're going to continue our series today on Black Girl Magic, trying to make sure we highlight the complexity and depth of stories of Black women, because too often we get portrayed as stereotypical and monolithic. And sometimes that Black Girl Magic is closer to home than we realize. Today, I'm honored to have with me my mother, Sandra Johnson Hudson. And I really appreciate you, Mom, for sitting down with me. I know that it was not an easy answer to give. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, so yeah, I really just want us to have a conversation about your experience in this world as a black woman. I know there, I feel like there are pieces of the conversation we've had, but I think you've lived an amazing life. And I know that you've been a role model for me in terms of how to be in the world as a black woman in particular, but we haven't really always sat down and talked about it like as a black woman thing, right? I guess not. Yeah, so let's do that. You down for that? Okay, let's go. <laughs> um, so I was thinking about starting with the stories that I know about you in terms of like race and childhood are the fact that you were part of that early wave of trying to integrate schools in St. Louis, right? And so what grade was that when you were kind of sent to be, they thought, oh, well, if we send the gifted kids, it won't be so bad. I guess that's what they thought. Uh, they tested us in fifth grade and they transferred us in sixth grade. And so you were transferred from where to where? From Benton Elementary at St. Louis Avenue and Kings Highway. Okay. To Ashland in North City. Where is that now, Ashland exactly? I. I know it's off of Newstead, but I'm not sure what the cross street is. Uh-huh. But they, so they... It's just a few blocks north of Natural Bridge. Okay. Okay. So before fifth grade, you were in, or before sixth grade, the school you were in was predominantly black? Yeah. All, it was all black. It was all black. Yes. Yeah. So being a, a young black girl in St. Louis, were you aware of race at that point? Well, I... I you know, initially I would have said not really, but then as I thought about it, I don't think my father ever let me forget the topic. So I was aware because of um, because of biracial situations in in my own family. Oh, so Papa would talk about his own background having a white father and a yes. black mother. Yes. And so race was salient in that way. Yes, and never in a positive. Right. He had a lot of anger. Yes. He had a lot of anger about his dad. Correct. And the rejection that he felt from his white father. Yes, and the fact that his mother died early, he always his interpretation was she left me. Mm. Why did she leave me? Mm. And he was not quite too when she left. So the fact that it stuck with him, you know, I, it was difficult for him as a child mm -hmm. to comprehend. And while he says his father didn't want him, the truth is that his father offered to keep him. I didn't know that. His father said, I will take James, but I don't, I can't take Jessie May, which was his sister. And his mother, his aunt, who raised him, that we know as our, you know, as as our grandmother in our family, 
um, said, no, you cannot separate them. They are sister and brother, and I will take them both. And does he know that story? Did he know that story? I don't know that. I don't know whether he knew it or he couldn't um, accept it. I'm not sure where the disconnect happened. But Hmm. in his mind, his father rejected him and his mother left. So he had a lot of hatred in terms of race towards white folks. Yes. But did you have any experiences like being treated? Did you have any awareness of being treated a specific way because you were a black girl before you went to Ashland? No. Okay. No. No. And it really was more Walnut Park than Ashland. That's where I was very aware of angry white people not wanting us in the building, not wanting us at their school. Mm. How did that come out? Like, what were they doing? That throwing rocks at the at the bus. Oh, um, shouting unpleasant comments as they did, you know, through the rocks, and they they were very vocal. How long did that last? I, was it just at the beginning of the school year? Was it all year? It was It was when we first arrived, but I, I really am not clear in my memory how long it lasted. And it doesn't really matter. I mean, you experienced it. I'm yes. not trying to, to suggest that if it only lasted a day that it wasn't yeah. so bad. It was awful. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. And it, I, was, it was unpleasant and very uncomfortable. It was frightening to a child. Oh, I bet. Because you're what? 12? Uh, well, Yeah. Approximately. Hmm. Yeah. And I were there any adults on the bus with you other than the bus driver? I don't remember any. Just because you see the visuals of like Ruby Bridges and, you know, that there are adults around her, even though there's hate surrounding her. Yes. And I'm, I just am imagining, you know, the, the ones that didn't get caught on the headlines, like you, you all here, like yeah. were there people to protect you or to walk Next well, to you. I think they discovered that they needed to have, we needed to be escorted. And so our classroom teacher would come and meet us at the bus and take us into the building. And did they have you in segregated classes? No. Okay. No, uh, because we were separated by test scores. No. Hmm. No, it was integrated. Uh, I was in an integrated environment from sixth grade on. Okay. Okay. Huh. So early on, from your father and from school, you didn't have a very good introduction to race relations. No. (laughs) (laughs) Hadn't thought of it that way, but no. (laughs) Huh. Yeah, yeah. And so all the way through, even when you went to Vassar, you were in these predominantly white spaces. Yeah. Uh, Beaumont was integrated. Okay. high school. Right. And then we transferred to Northwest High School. It was a brand new building, and we were the very first class to graduate from Northwest High School. And both of those situations were integrated. Were they more welcoming? Yes. You had to think about that. I had to think about it. Um, I don't recall any negative experiences in either of those spaces. Uh huh. Do you recall any affirming experiences? Anyone affirming your identity as a black 
girl or a black young woman? My drama teacher at uh, Northwest High School. Um, he was putting on a production, and I don't remember whether we had done any prior to this, but he had a role that he assigned to a, a young white female, and part of the role required a Swedish accent, and she wasn't able to deliver what he was looking for. I don't know why I could, but I, I did it for him, and he let her perform one night, and I performed one night. Because he'd given her the role, he didn't want to take it away. Mm -hmm. But because I could do the accent and she couldn't, I got to do a night of my own. I never so, knew you were in drama. I didn't think you did. Have you ever told me that story? I don't think so. <laughs> it wasn't important. <laughs> you only tell me important things? I try. <laughs> Can you still do the accent? I don't know. I doubt that I can. Do you want to try I'm it? I'm not going to do it. At <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> don't okay, we won't go it. that far. Uh, what about from at home, like from grandma and papa, any affirming messages about being a black girl? Oh, I think my mother was always affirming of that. And, but does she name it? Or I mean, she was affirming of... No, she was affirming As a person. Of, yeah. That was it for her. It was important. Your character was important and your, you know, delivering on your word was important. And, and academics were extremely important to her. Um, Did she ever say they needed to be important because you're a black girl in this world? She said that, I don't know if it was really her or because my father said that you, and, and I know that your sister hates this phrase, but what I was told is the same thing Nicole was told when she was growing up, which is we always have to be twice as good. Yeah. In order to even get recognized at all. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately, that is the, the common experience that you can be mediocre if you're a white guy. And still get ahead. But not as a black student. You but could not. No. That was not nope. enough. You could be stellar and still be overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. was true even in a minority institution. Uh, because I, the example there I would draw from is your father, who attended Sumner High School, which was all black. And his homeroom teacher never, and his counselor, never told him about taking the SAT. And yet they were taking a busload of students to Washington University mm -hmm. on a Saturday mm -hmm. to take that exam. And he was a track one student, which is supposed to be a good student. But they were only taking track 1A. Only those students that they knew for sure, could succeed. Hmm. Yeah. So that you know, so it, it didn't, that becomes true whether you're black or white as an educator. It just seems to be what they deliver to students is that for us, we have to be twice as good. Mm -hmm. And they want the cream of the crop. To make it in this world. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. Sort of a W.E.B. Du Bois kind of statement, isn't it? Uh, the the idea of the color cream line, of the, crop. the cream of the crop. Yeah. And cultivating that talented 10th. Yeah. Yeah, which is so limiting. Yes, exactly. We miss out on a lot yeah. when we do that. You miss a lot of folks who have who have skills skill and sets talents that you know don't necessarily test well, right? Because that's all that delivers is you are able to take a test, right? Right. And yeah. there are more skills in life than that. There are. There are. Yeah, I was just I was thinking uh, the reason I was digging around about growing up and your identity as a black woman is cuz some people sometimes people romanticize the time when before integration, uh, this idea that you know black folks you could have a lawyer and a doctor on the same block and oh, that But that's true. Uh, oh, no, I I agree, right? Yeah. And so that there was a way in which we didn't really have to qualify ourselves as black folks. We just were Right. And so that I was wondering if that was the case because, you know, you, you lived in a neighborhood in a time where you could, you were black in St. Louis and. Our home, the home that my parents moved into in 1959, Mm -hmm. I would have been 12. It was the second house on the block to be purchased by a black family. Oh, so it was the start of white flight. Yep. For that neighborhood. Do you yes. remember how quickly it took for it to turn? I would say four years. So that's pretty fast. Yeah. That's pretty fast. People moved out as fast as they could. Okay. Yeah. So I was wondering, were you, did you feel that kind of idyllic, we're all black and living in, together and we don't have to qualify, but then you were at the cusp of the time where there was integration happening, you were having rocks thrown at you. Um, not quite black as beautiful, but almost, uh, to be young, gifted and black, right? Like you were kind of growing up in, on the edge of both of those times. Interesting. Yes or no? Yeah, I guess. Uh, the young, gifted and black, I didn't feel till I got to college. college. Yeah. Yeah. So why did you go to Vassar? That's a long way away from St. Louis. I intentionally looked for colleges that were a long way from St. Louis. Uh, And I had a high school counselor who was working on her PhD and writing her dissertation. And I think she focused it around our class. And she had students who went as far away west as Reed College. I think that's Oregon. I think so. And you know, several of us went to the East Coast. So there were all of the black students under her guidance were able to secure scholarships. Um, And Vassar offered a good scholarship. Did you know what you wanted to study when you went there? No. You just knew you wanted to get out of St. Louis and it was a good school? Yes. How many black women were in your class? There were 10. 10 out of 400 something. Mm -hmm. So I I always remember that because Mm -hmm. when I went to Mount Holyoke, there were 13 out of 430. Not much different. Not much different at all. Yeah. I mean, that's what, 30 some years later. Yeah. And not much different. Correct. So people think about, oh, the strides we've made. And not that we haven't made strides, but numerically. I find that most depressing. What? The strides we have not 
me. Mm. Um, I think when your dad went to medical school, the I think the percentage of black med students or black physicians, mm-hmm. let me put it that way, practicing in the United States was somewhere below 5%. Where are we now? Probably about the same. We're still there. Yeah. Yeah. It has not moved. Yeah. It's almost as if there's an intentional monitoring and the gates are only open for so many. Mm. Mm. And once those are met, you just have to wait for the next round. Hmm. I mean, I definitely think there's there's intentionality. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it in terms of like actually monitoring and thinking about, oh, 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 we got too many. Well, it can't be accidental that those numbers (sighs) have not moved. Or, I mean, what if it's just the same barriers that exist and that haven't, maybe we've, maybe we have a facade of them moving, but they really haven't. Uh, I I don't know. I think there may be some degree of that. Mm -hmm. But I think the barriers have changed and shifted mm-hmm. and, you know, they're more, they're far more women now than they were in 1970 when he was accepted. Um, but why not black folks? Yeah. Well, people yeah. often are blown away when you talk about affirmative action and you share that affirmative action has benefited white women and veterans the most. Yes. Has not benefited yes. the people of color that it was created for during and the civil rights movement. did you say veterans? Yes, veterans and women. Okay, but white veterans, not veterans of color. No, I, yeah, I don't know the disaggregated numbers, but I would, I would, I would venture to guess you're right. Well, when you look at what happened after World War II and we oh, were cut out of housing, I I find people today who had no clue nope. that. African-American veterans coming out of World War II could not attend college. And couldn't get the housing benefits. They would be happy to po- to direct you in some sort of, you know. Trade. Uh, trade, but not to admit you to college and not to use your veterans' benefits for that. And FHA even had, there are printed newspaper ads that clearly say colored need not apply. Mm-hmm. So that whole birth of the suburbs that we saw happened was not black for folks us. We're not was able to not access it for us. Nope. It was because maybe because they were going to the suburbs, then they opened up some of the communities in the city, and that's why we have the situation we have today. Yeah, and they didn't invest in the city the way they invested oh, in the no. suburbs. Well, they left. Billions of dollars invested in the suburbs and why, a fraction. Why would they, they... The level of caring was not the same. Yeah. And that's what, I, that's what gets me now with people who don't realize the like active uh, neglect that our government and the systems in our government yeah. and, and even our businesses... The way in which they yeah. neglect but spaces th- that are probably. I think something you referred to earlier, that's why people look back with um, positive feelings about when we were segregated. Oh, because we were. We had our own. Together, we had our own. Yeah. The dollar turned around in our own communities. Yeah. Actually, I, that's something I wanted to ask you too. Um, 
I mean, I know Grandma and Papa had their store. Were there other black entrepreneurs in the in your neighborhood that you knew, or was their store the only no. business owners you knew? They or, weren't the only business owners that I knew, but they were in our family. The only in our family. Yeah. yeah. I can't think of anyone else in the family who was in business mm-hmm. per se. Mm-hmm. Were, okay. In the neighborhood, were there other black owned businesses? No. So no. their store was an anomaly? Yes. Huh. Yes. And their store was at the corner of uh, 23rd, 23rd and, and Warren. Warren. I always want to say 23rd and Which is now in the NGA footprint. Yeah. I wonder if they'll even keep those streets. I doubt it. You think because just... I think they'll create a big uh, campus. You know, I doubt that they'll keep the majority of those streets. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you recall any um, any barriers that Papa, Grandma, and Papa had about being black business owners? Oh yes, oh yes. Your grandfather was quite outspoken. Um, his salespeople, the salespeople who showed up to you know take his orders when they first opened the store, they were all white. Eventually, your grand, my father, your grandfather, said to the companies that if they could not send a black salesman, that they could not have his business. And so there were some changes that hmm. had to occur. Hmm. And there were some lines of liquor that he just didn't carry. I never knew that. <laughs> I'm learning lots of stuff. Huh. Huh. So getting back to Vassar, what was it like to be a black woman at Vassar? 10 of 400. It was, uh, oh, how can I, I don't know how to summarize that. Um, There were times of isolation. There were times when you knew you were a curiosity. Um, And one just real basic example was there was a young lady on in our dormitory who would cut people's hair. And so I decided I wanted to have my hair cut. Well, I did not realize that it was going to be uh, a community event, that there were folks who wanted to watch and Whoa. weren't quite sure how she was going to do this or manage it. Whoa. And whether it was going to be really different. Did you have a sense? You didn't know it was a community event. You just Not thought you were going to Not until I was in the moment. And I knew it wasn't necessary to have all these people standing around watching. And it didn't take me long to realize what had occurred. What would you do? I was half hair. I had half a head cut. I just let her finish. (laughs) Did you ever go back for another haircut? No. (laughs) Uh, No. Huh. Huh. So I know that you also were instrumental in getting uh, resources for black students on Vassar's campus. There was a group. 
it was a group effort. Um, you know, I mean, it can't be a big group because there weren't that many of us. But yes, we, that was realized I was there from 65 to 69. Oh. And think about the things the assassinations. that were happening in that time frame. And um, we, a friend and I were both history majors. And we were very interested in our own history and made it, we took, we did some independent study kind of courses, you know, which we got credit for, but we wanted that to be available to more students. And we kind of, we lobbied with the administration and, and the necessary folks to get that accomplished. And I think the last thing before I graduated was getting approval for an African-American um, house so that students of color actually had a place to go and congregate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we pushed for black faculty as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which at that point didn't mean a lot. It probably just, meant a few. Just like the numbers yeah. of black doctors has not increased. The that number of black and the black folks in the professoriate has pretty much stayed flat, like yeah. 4%. Oh, very similar. Mm -hmm. Very similar. I mean, you sanitize that a bit. I mean, you all pushed. I sanitize that? I typically do. Right? <laughs> I mean, you all pushed. I heard you protest. I heard you took over a building. Uh, yeah, the taking over of the building was my senior year. I was living off campus, so I can't, you know, take a whole lot of credit for that. But yes, we did. We did take over a building. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just, I'm naming yeah. that because I think sometimes people hear, oh, we lobbied and we did that. And they don't realize that it, sometimes it takes direct action. Although yeah. given the dynamics of today, I think folks are more clear that it often takes direct action. Yeah, yeah. But just want to name that it wasn't like you walked in and said, we'd like this. And they said, okay. Uh, no, no. It took a little more pushing than that. Mm -hmm. um, after all, there were what, 10 in, if there were 10 in each class. Right, that's 40 which, out of. Which, let me say, there were not. <laughs> I know for sure there were not 40 of us on campus, um, but it took a lot of, of um, writing to get the demands clear, and it took a lot of, um, what, commitment, I guess, is the main word, and the dedication to keep pushing and to get it through mm -hmm. and get it approved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. here you are going back for your reunion. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe it's been 50 years. Yeah. It has. How do you feel going back? Um, Torn. Yeah? Yeah. But I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. You deserve to take up space there, just as any alumni does. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I don't know if there's anything else you want to talk about from your time at Vassar. I don't know what that would be. I don't know, a little thesis topic. Oh, oh. That was another incident that came out of independent study. Mm -hmm. um, and I developed an interest 
And whether or not, I wanted to compare Brazil with the United States in the 19th century. Because Brazil ended slavery without civil war. Whereas in the United States, it was found to be necessary to secede from the Union, to take up arms, to, you know, have this awful, bloody war, brothers against brothers, and so on and so on. Um, and I wanted to study and compare the two. And so that became my thesis topic. And my advisor was supportive. And he approved the process and the steps that, you know, the different drafts that happened. However, at the end in the final draft, our final submission, there were other professors involved, and the head of the history department did not feel that he agreed with my conclusion, which was that it was a matter of color, and it, would not have, it did not matter whether countries went to war or not, that there was discrimination based on color line, built into the societies in which they lived, regardless of how they got there. And he disagreed with that conclusion and gave me a really hard time and not a really stellar grade as a consequence. What did he, what was his perspective what did he his perspective was that he was a southern gentleman and he felt that the war of northern aggression in his viewpoint intervened inappropriately in the economics of the south i still don't see how that has anything to do with your conclusion but i see i see who we're working his with his perspective was not interested in color line. Exactly. <laughs> His perspective was that he could care less right. about those issues. Yeah. And he didn't feel that he could elevate the kind of writing that concluded, a, you know, anything differently. Mm. Interesting. So it was not a positive way to end your career yeah. at the college. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I'm trying to think about some sort of like uh, reconciliation you could do for yourself as you go back. I don't know. Do you, you have know, your thesis? The, you know what has, I do have my thesis. And what has occurred to me is to take another look at it and perhaps submit it for publication. Why not? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Because do I recall you were rejected honors because of his? Yeah. I, if shoot, I would at least resubmit it to the history department at Vassar and get, get my honors. It is a different world today. And what is being said at the conclusion might be more acceptable today than it was in 1969. Yeah. I want to read it. You've never offered that? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. It's put away. Okay. You going to pull it out before you go? 
before I leave the world? No, before you leave for your... <laughs> before I go. Before you... Wait a minute. <laughs> before you go to your reunion. Uh, I hadn't thought about it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I appreciate you kind of taking this walk down the history of things, right? I, um, I, 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 again, think that so often we see Black women arrive at where they are and we don't we don't know the backstory. Mm-hmm. So if I think about like what I knew about you as a kid, right? Like I knew you had gone to Vassar. I knew that you were one of the one of the early black women to be a systems analyst at IBM. Um, I knew that you were an entrepreneur yourself. I knew that you were on the school board at Edwardsville. And something that I wanted to get your thoughts about, like I saw you do all these things, is now that I'm a mother. And I'm making all sorts of decisions around where we live, where my kids go to school, who we socialize with, all of that. I'm wondering if you could talk about what it was like to choose Edwardsville as a black family raising black girls. Oh, well, I think I talked earlier about how my parents pressed the, you know, the topic of academics and their expectations of us as students. Um, And I think that fed into my decision to move to Edwardsville because I watched each year when I first moved to the area, and I used that geographic area, um, you were an infant. And your sister was in preschool. And so what I did was to purposely watch to see where the National Merit Scholars were coming from, which school districts in the surrounding area produced National Merit Scholars, which to me was a, you know, may not have been the greatest way to judge, but it was indicative of the kind of education that was being delivered in those school districts. And Edwardsville was always at the top of the list. It always, in that geographic area, it always had more national merit scholars. Um, So that's why I was looking at that community. And I think both of you had started Suzuki before the violin training at SIU, before we actually made the move. So that was another reason, you know, was that we would be closer to the music lessons that you were getting. Mm-hmm. So, but it was primarily focused on the academics. That was the reason I went there. You didn't have any thoughts about these black kids and this black family in the cornfields? I had been fighting white folks since I was teeny tiny. And I knew that you were capable and strong enough and able to get past whatever they could put in your path. And I also knew that they had to go through me to get to you. Pretty much. Pretty much. That's what led you to the school board, right? That's exactly what led me to the school board because I had several instances, classroom instances, that showed me that Black students were not treated the same, were not given the same assumptions that other students might be afforded. And if I weren't physically present and making it known that I cared, 
then I was going to be fighting a bigger battle. So to care even more, I put myself in the path so that, you know, working on the school board. Yeah. And you were on the school board for how many years? 16. 16. I told someone 12. I was wrong. Four, four-year terms. And I, even you- Until my first grandson. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I was going to say you served beyond when we were there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Just a little. Just a little. So any words of wisdom that you would give me as as a black mother raising kids? Well, you know, it, I think it, it will always matter their character. It will always matter the academic standards that you expect from them. Um, but I, I'm not sure that I can give advice on raising sons. Oh, I don't know that they're that different. Well, I don't I'm, know. What do you think? I always thought they were. I, I have to ask my son-in-law. Yeah. I mean, I talked to, I talked to people who have girls and boys. I feel like there's some of the, sim- there's similar dynamics. I mean, so there's definitely a different socialization that happens in the world. Yeah. But yeah. in terms of like how we care behavioral for them. discipline in the schools, though, is that not different um, for girls I than boys? I think what gets what gets tagged as problematic behavior is different. I think so too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know I've I've seen just yeah that ki- that black boys in particular can get passed over in ways that that's a whole nother that's a whole nother that's a conversation. whole nother topic. That's a whole nother conversation. But that gets me off the hook from giving too much advice. Ah! (laughs) So I want to just highlight a few other things, right? Like that, well, just as, as you've moved through your career and your life, and I don't know if there's anything in particular that you want to reflect on as a black woman in the different spaces and, and roles you've had. Are there? Probably. What would you want to reflect on? I think there's a tendency in business environments to overlook women. And I also have to take ownership of the fact that I don't speak loud and I don't fuss. And so it's easier for people to overlook because I will speak and state my case and speak my mind and, and do it quietly and peacefully. Um, but my experience has just been that um, there's a level of disrespect and devaluing, especially from white males. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to that whole philosophy that you have to work twice as hard, you have to do twice as much, Mm -hmm. and you have to push Mm -hmm. in order to be heard. I mean, that adage is there for a reason. Yeah. Are there times where you felt like you had to do that? I know it's not in your nature to do that. I'm doing it now. I'm doing it on a board that I sit on now. And there are two... One third of the board is female, but I'm the only African-American female. 
And the rest of the board is white male. Um, so it's just a challenge. To be heard. To be heard. Even as the chair. Even as the chair. It's a community development organization that operates nationally across the country. And we do projects that range from residential to, you know, public-private partnerships with universities or cities. Um, But the board consists of people who have either come out of some experience in relating to this organization or they have actually served in a capacity Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. it. Can you think of an example, whether it was when you were at IBM or CEO of the Urban League or owning your own business? No, I'm just going to call them all out. (laughs) An example of... An example of where you felt like as a woman, as a Black woman, that you were being overlooked. Oh, I think in... In the corporate environment, absolutely. Yes. Um, but it, it, it speaks to the same kind of, of uh, numbers that I just described. You know, you might just let fewer women involved and definitely fewer women in management where I was located. In the nonprofit environment, I can't think of an example where I felt like that was the case. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I guess it just worked to my advantage, actually. What, that the majority of nonprofits are being led by un- women? Being underestimated. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So people don't expect you to be as competent. To come on strong. Oh. No. Hmm. And then when you do. Does it catch them off balance? Yeah. And then they do. It's a good thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's interesting because I remember in college, I think it was, people would say, oh, you're so confident. And, you know, and I, they, and I would say, well, I, I mean, I just, that's how I carry myself. And I remember saying that you tricked me into being confident because you used to give your speeches or do whatever you were doing on school board or whatever. And it wasn't until I was I probably in college that I realized you did that, but you didn't like doing it. Oh, no. And it actually kind of scared you and made you nervous. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. you felt like you had to show up. True. Yeah. True. Definitely. I can remember some times when I would get sick the night before because I had knew I had to deliver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you do what you have to do, you know, and I guess what I kept saying as you guys were growing up is you fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think the the idea of like the strong black woman, the strong black woman who can kind of do everything, take everything and doesn't show, you know, doesn't show weakness, was that something that you ever identified with? I didn't identify with it. Okay. No. You didn't buy into it? No. I don't. No, I don't think I did. Um, I think everybody has strengths and weaknesses, and I don't think we have to be ashamed of our weaknesses, you know? Um, So I don't think I bought into that 
being capable in all areas and being able to deliver every th- skill. Hmm. Hmm. I don't think so. I think okay. a lot of black women feel like they have are supposed to live up to that, that they can take care of everyone, that they can do everything, that they can juggle everything. And then when they don't live up to it, they're dismayed, they're just distressed, they're depressed. And it's really tough to like get out of that idea that they're, that you're supposed to be able to do everything. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. What do you think about the recent hashtag black girl magic? I think it's great. Yeah. It reminds me of Nina Simone and, you know, to be young, gifted and black. I think it's great. Hmm. Do you recall having conversations with us growing up about being young, gifted and black? Yes. Yes, I guess. But I don't recall identifying it that way. Uh Uh-huh. Just being strong, you know, being capable, Uh being confident. Um. And holding your head up high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't recall like direct conversations, but I do feel like there was something we had to navigate being black and being affluent. Like there was this like the class um, yeah. race stuff. Yeah. It was there. Yeah. You, what are your thoughts about? About that, how you navigated. How I navigated it or how I watched you navigate it? Either one. I th- I think I was aware of it when you were in high school. Or maybe when Nicole was in high school, which is four years ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of of young people from the rural areas of Edwardsville or the agricultural stuff, you know, the homey kind of environment, our mindset of, of that group of people. White people? Yeah. Yeah. But also, I think I was aware of the fact that there were black students as well who had who made it a challenge for you to belong, so to speak. And it was, of course, during puberty, during teenage years, when it's so important to belong, to find your space mm-hmm. where you have comfort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I-, I wonder how that was for you, because like, for, for us, for me, I'll speak for myself, that was all I knew. I grew up in Edwardsville. I knew my family situation. Mm-hmm. But for you, you were the first in your family to go to college, first generation college student, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so there was like a, a shift in class and education status that you experienced, whereas for me, it was just what I knew. But it really was no different uh, because I was in such small numbers. I'm just thinking that I was navigating a world that I didn't belong to. Mm-hmm. And there was no there was no way I was going to belong to it. Mm-hmm. So I think that was different. Yeah. Yeah. Then I just felt that that was a different aspect 
to for me to be the only black person in the room or you know it was part of how i lived mm okay and so that didn't feel different when class shifted it was kind of the same it's it's the same mhm i mean dad and i are still that way mhm when we you know if we go to a washu alumni meeting how many other black people are there they're, they they don't show up oh but recently we attended um the Trailblazer Dinner, mm-hmm. which was focused on African American graduates of WashU, yeah, and the room was packed, yeah. But they don't show up for these other, you know, the other kinds of events. Well, maybe because of their experiences that they had. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Perhaps so. Hmm. Interesting. Well, if you had any advice for other Black women, or like your daughter, who's a Black woman sitting here. <laughs> navigating um not just navigating the discrimination and challenges that would come but like just even being confident in yourself as a black woman like w- what's this face this face is own it this face is you've overcome so much more than they will ever know Walk in the room like you own it. They're in your space. All right. This is our world. We were here first. True. True. Own it. I don't know that you've ever said it like that. I think you showed it. Have you ever said it like that? No. Okay. Well, I'm glad you did. Maybe it took being on camera <laughs> being and, put on the spot. and put on the spot <laughs> to say it like that. <laughs> I'm glad we could capture yeah. it. <laughs> well, they get to navigate in our world. Uh-huh. Okay. They think they own it, but they don't. Okay. All right. Okay. Thinking about us being kids and being black, but also being affluent. Like, were there things that you felt like you had to teach us or, or did you just think, oh, we just got to help them be black girls in this world? I don't think I perceived us as affluent. Really? I, I recognize that your father had a good paying job. I recognize that that we were capable of doing more than other people in our family and and some people in our community but i i hope i never gave off that I was better than anybody. Oh, no. You all made it clear to us that anything you we are, had made us right. no better. You are no different yes. from anyone else. Well, so you all made that clear. And that was that was clear to me. Okay. But the life we lived was of affluence. Like, whether it was the country club or the, the plays that we attended, whether it was the rep or the now, box. Now, listen. Or- the the country club was business. 
that was all about business. We were there because your father was the only African-American physician in the community. And you felt like you had to be there? No, we didn't have, we, we needed to be there. Mm, for them to know him? For them to, to make an appointment, for them to have a comfort level that he could do surgery on their eye, which was his specialty. And I think you could talk to him about how many cataracts came from his affiliation with the country club. Right. Okay. That was not about any kind of social climbing at all. I mean, I'm not saying we were better then, but you all oh, were able no. to you all were able to take us places. For my 16th birthday, I got to say where I wanted to go and I went. I ended college debt free. You gifted I had so much economic privilege. That's not wealth like some folks have, but that is that is economic privilege. And it's valuable. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And so I know for me, that's something I think about because you all grounded us in the fact that we were no better, even if we could go shopping and go to these trips and do these things. I was clear on that. And I never thought I was better than anyone in the family because we had these things. But maybe it's that I have to think about it more because my kids are more removed. Maybe. Like their second generation, you know, third oh, generation oh, oh, college. Oh, okay. And they, they do, they talk about their grandma and pop pop okay. are rich. What? Oh, yeah. They have a big house. Oh, put that to rest. They, Avery told me that I had gone down in class because he looked up how much professors make and how much lawyers make. And that doesn't compare to what his grandparents make. <laughs> Where did he get this? <laughs> Google. Oh <laughs> and I mean, again, and even like with Jack and Jill, like we were a part of these organizations that were about social status and about social class. So even if Jack and Jill Jack and, and the Jill country club were strategic. To, Jack and Jill was to counterbalance the fact that you were not in a black school. Mm. Mm-hmm. And for me, you needed to have the exposure you, and you needed to know there were other black students who shared some of your experiences. Yes, I agree. And that's part of why I'm in it, because I think it's important for my right. kids to see other black kids who are from a variety of backgrounds. Right. And so they have that experience at school. They have an experience in Jack and Jill. They have an experience from our social circles. I right. want them to see that there's lots of ways of being black. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and there's not just one way of being black. Because I do, I do think that growing up in Edwardsville... I was getting pressure that there was one way to be black and that the way we were black was not normal black. <laughs> normal black. Yeah, we were, people called us the Huxtables. We lived in a big house. My dad was a doctor. You weren't a lawyer, but... No. Yeah, they, we were an anomaly. We were foreign to them, to the black kids and the white kids. But they also needed to see that there were... That there's more than one way to be black. Sure, but it was at my expense. It wasn't fun. <laughs> and I mean, it, it is what it is. But they really, they thought we, uh, we were weird. I don't know. How do we get there? 
Oh, just navigating race and class. Yeah. And that it wasn't really on your radar because the class that you were experiencing, I, I it wasn't. I never thought I'd left where I came from. Well, because we really don't in terms of class. It's very much where you come from. I mean, and, why does everybody in St. Louis want to know where you went to high school? Yeah. Because then they can tell what social class you should be in. Right. And you never lose it. Yeah. And I guess I, I never thought of it. Really? No. No. You're no different from anyone else. Oh, I know I'm not. You just, you have a, uh, a job that permits some privilege. Mm-hmm. But, but your father still gets stopped at conference hotels and asked when the bus is coming. <laughs> so I understand. How could, so how could I think you were any better? You know, I mean, but it's not we a, never lose it. No, I agree. I agree. That identity is forever with you. You mean as a black person? Yeah. Yeah. I, a, class doesn't save you from it. It does not save you at all. Oh, no. Not in the least. But it does afford you a lot of different uh, privileges along the way. True. True. And I think it was those privileges that I had to, I had to grapple with because people assumed, like when I went to college, they assumed I was black and at Mount Holyoke and that I had a life that of struggle. Poverty stricken. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple people who found out that I wasn't and I was no and longer they, acceptable. And they made a big deal out of it. Yep. Because they were so small that they couldn't visualize that there was anything different in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was one of the most painful experiences. Yeah. You know? So I, I, it's interesting that it wasn't really something that you thought about, but it was definitely a, a very um, palpable part of my experience being Black and privileged. privileged, economically privileged. Yeah. And it's almost like there are times where I have to, like, come out to people. Because will they make the assumption that here I've arrived and that where I came from, they assume that I came from, from that like, struggle oh. of poverty. And I have to be like, mm, sorry. No, <laughs> not so much. Not so much. And that doesn't mean that I think I'm better. That doesn't mean that I have, you know, that I'm not in, that I uh, adhere to like respectability politics or and all the so things. And so is that part of the monolith yeah. Is that part yeah. of yeah yeah and that's part it's of stereotypes yes and that's part of why I wanted to do this series so that people understand that there's lots of ways to navigate the world as a black woman that there's not one way there's not one path there's not one meaning making process that it sounds like for you you yeah it doesn't sound like it sounds like you had a lot of experience that were shaped by being a black woman, mm -hmm. but that it wasn't being a black woman wasn't like at the forefront of your, it wasn't, doesn't sound like it's what you led with all the time. Like it is who you are, period. 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 So see, to me, I'm leading with it because uh -huh. it is who I am. Yeah. And you can't tell me that, you know, all of those privileged white males don't immediately think of race as soon as they look at me. Right. And they make assumptions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's part of the monolith. It's part of the stereotype. You know, I, I think I do lead with it, but mm -hmm. I don't in the way, I guess, that society expects. Yeah. 
And you're not loud about it. You kind of just are. Yeah. That's how you are. No, I'm not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think people think that they can, like you said, they make assumptions or they oh, think yeah. that they, they can get they over can or they think over, they can walk. walk on top of you and, you know, they don't have to respect and blah, blah, blah. And then it becomes necessary to engage them in other ways. Or assert yourself. I mean, I think you've even gotten that from black other black folks too, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, because there were some there, yeah. There are assumptions made on, on their part as well, just as you described from your college friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yep. But everybody has a story. So True. I think it's important to True. To highlight different stories so that people can get out of that monolith. Because part of the unconscious bias literature would say the, re- the way you break up that, those automatic assumptions is by having other exemplars, like examples of what it's like to be in that group that you're having a bias towards that breaks away from the stereotypes. So, right, like if there's a stereotype of black women being loud and all of these things, like you can be a black woman and be like that and have depth and substance, but that you also need to make sure you understand that that's not how all black women are. And that there are black women who, who walk and move in different ways and that they are just as validly black women. Absolutely. Yep. So, all right. Well, thank you very much, mama. You're welcome. I appreciate you sharing. I know it wasn't easy, but it wasn't hard. No. Right? Didn't hurt. No. <laughs> Not much. Will you come back? I don't know. <laughs> well, I appreciate you joining me. I've learned some things that I didn't know. And I want to hear that sweetest action sometime. Oh, my gosh. I <laughs> doubt if I even remember it. That was high school. My goodness. Oh, if folks want to follow you... <laughs> Or hear more about you? Is there any is there any place where you would point them? Or is there a place where you'd point them to donate to a cause that you care deeply about? Oh my. Uh, I have four grandsons. Yes, you do. And they are all attending the same school. Yes, they are. And so support for City Garden Montessori, mm-hmm. perhaps? Yeah, that'll work. That'll work. And they have some really, really good anti-bias, anti-racist exactly. education that's happening there. So it is, it's a special place. You know, no place is perfect and um, it's a special place. Yes. Yeah. Well, thanks for being with me. Sure. And thank you all for joining me on Raising Equity. Uh, I learned a lot about my mom. Uh, hopefully her story and her lessons uh, were a gift to you as well. Join us next time on Raising Equity.